You're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Welcome back to another episode of Oil & Gas This Week. You're listening to episode 161. What's up, Mark? What's up, Jake? Is that we're so busy, we're, we're recording this later than we normally do. You and I are both hungry, so if we get hangry on the, on the podcast, it's, it's not our fault. We're just busy. But before we get into anything else, quick announcements. So Oil & Gas Global Network, which is the parent of this podcast and all the podcasts, is looking for a street team. You want to play a part in what we're doing? You want to be a volunteer, get exposed to all the stuff we're doing, be part of our press team, get some really cool shirts and other great perks? reach out to me. So basically what I'm looking for is people that will take ownership of our social media. So each platform. So I need some people that are being charged with Oil and Gas Global Network LinkedIn, Oil and Gas Global Network Twitter, blah, 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 blah. We'll talk to you about this off the show. Minimum investment in time, maybe an hour a week. But if we can get some volunteers to help us with this, we get unique content on each platform, which benefits everybody. And then you get to hang out with us and do some of the cool stuff that we're doing for absolutely nothing. Plus, like I said, get some great perks, cool shirts. I'll be part of our press team. Go to all these oil and gas conferences all over the place. So reach out to me directly if you want to be a part of the oil and gas global network street team. And then speaking of supporting the show, best way you can do it is leave a review. We got a couple of good ones. Only place I go for oil and gas news. I love that already. Uh, we know Julie, I believe. Somebody's married to her. Um, <laughs> Mark and Jake always provide the most interesting news in oil and gas. They're both super easy to listen to and very knowledgeable in the industry. Great job, guys. Thanks, Julie. And then we have Best Podcast Available. Love that one, too. By Houston, the review guy. By far the best podcast out there. I'm not even in the oil and gas industry, but stumbled across the podcast while researching. And I'm cur- currently forming an entrance strategy. These guys played a major role. Thanks, guys. Keep up the good work. You know, Jake, that's a compliment. Somebody outside of our industry says we have a great podcast. That's awesome. Yeah. So this is First Friday Q&A. So, Jake, let's just jump into it. What's the first question? First question is from Anonymous. Question is, how do you think the recent global warming of point 1.5 degrees Celsius study by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change will affect the oil and gas industry. Love this question. You didn't have to be anonymous, but it's a good one. So the the IPCC, that's the UN United Nations body on climate change, right? I don't want to get into the actual study. That's a totally different discussion, but let's just literally, I want to answer her question. So what do I think that this study effect will have in the oil and gas industry? couple of things. So first thing, some people will take this study and, and, and make the decision that we need to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. The number one way exponentially on the planet to reduce carbon dioxide dimensions is to have the world switch from coal to natural gas for electrical generation. That will move the CO2 emissions needle faster than, and further than anything else you could possibly do. So what does that mean? That means you have to buy natural gas from us, the oil and gas industry. So what do I think this will do for the industry? Well, I think it'll help bolster the market for, for natural gas. The second thing is there's a bunch of smart people out there. Exxon's kind of one of the companies doing this. So is uh, Denberry Resources, where they actually use CO2 to stimulate the well. So, so basically you pull CO2 out of something, in this case, the air, and you inject it in the well, and it adds energy to the hydrocarbons, which allows it to easily make it much easier to remove them. And please, all your petroleum engineers and geoscientists, I know it's much more complex than that, but that's basically what it does. So so the answer to this is I think it'll actually help the oil and gas industry for the short term. Long-term wise, uh, who knows? I mean, this this world's getting crazy about stuff, but hydrocarbons are here forever, regardless of what some study says about one thing or the other. But short-term wise, I think it'll actually boost the demand for for gas, especially LNG. 
Hopefully, boost in price. <laughs> <laughs> You're not worried about gas price, though, are you? No, no, no. We're not. We're not actually selling natural gas. I mean, if if, if the price was what it used to be, we'd probably be capturing it instead of flaring it. Yeah. Okay. Next question is from Stuart Chenworth. He writes, "Hey guys, love all the podcast. As everyone knows, it's a great way to stay up to date on all the aspects of the oil and gas industry." Quick question: Our company provides bearing and bushing solutions for a wide range of applications, like reduce maintenance uh, and downtime, as well as handle a wide range of temperatures. Uh, and they can be very chemically resistant. When working with design engineers, what do you see as the number one benefit? Reduce maintenance or reduce downtime or general performance? Well, I think reduce maintenance and gen- reduce downtime are typically uh, kind of go hand in hand because by reducing maintenance, you're therefore reducing downtime. I think the the number one, I mean, having done a lot of research lately, talking with a lot of people who buy a lot of things and Mark knows through his uh, very extensive career in doing research, I think the number one thing is obviously reducing downtime is extremely important, but also looking at what is the what is the capex and what is the continuing opex. Yeah, and Jake, let me stop before you go as further down here. So the reason I left this in here because Stuart, great job on getting us to read your sales copy. We get a lot of those, and I usually <laughs> I, I usually don't leave them in here, but this is a good one. So the problem here, Stuart, is that you're making an assumption that you know it's one of two things. You make an assumption that the engineers will buy from you based upon downtime. Or performance, right? What if it's something else? It could easily be something like, hey, there's less people doing maintenance, so it lowers lost time incidents, which increases your HSE metrics, which is important, especially for the service companies, because they get hired by the major operators based on the HSE metrics. So, so Stuart, my advice to you, instead of you deciding what what's the one or two or three things why people buy from you, you should ask them why they buy from you. Go to your existing clients and ask them why do they buy from you. And, and the reason I'm bringing this in is uh, Jake and Colin have a side part of their business that's touched some of this, where you actually do the market research uh, to see where your product fits. And and I did that for a very long time. And I can tell you now, and I'm, I'm pretty well versed in this industry, 75 to 80% of the time when, when I would try to find a fit for a product, where we found that fit is a place I didn't even know existed. It was a reason I would have never guessed. So, Stuart, don't assume you know why people buy from you, especially if that's what your management and your marketing people tell you. Y'all need to understand from the market why they buy from you. And it may be something you've never even thought of. And what's great about our industry is they, if they if they feel like they trust you, they'll tell you. In fact, they won't shut up sometimes. <laughs> One of the problems we had when we used to do the market research is I couldn't get people to be quiet after we got through the structured interview. So, you know, Stuart, you may be right. That's one of the two things, but I'd be willing to bet that you're missing something and you just go out and should ask your existing clients. They'll tell you. Yep. Cool. Next question is from Bella, who is a lawyer. She writes, hey guys, noticed you guys haven't published any podcast this week. Are you still doing weekly podcast? This was from a few weeks ago. Yes, we're still recording. And sorry about that. We, uh, we're all, I'm, I'm traveling almost every single week and Mark is too. And so we're all over the place. And so sometimes it gets very hard to coordinate our schedules uh, and to sit down and actually record. So, But we're trying to be better. That's one of our New Year's resolutions. Right, Mark? Yep. And, and Bella, since you are an attorney, you can't hold me to this, but Jake and I have committed to ourselves and our audience that for 2019, we'll get back to regularly releasing episodes. We've actually uh, brought in another tool that can help us do that as well. So just patience, audience. We know we haven't been delivering like we're supposed to. We plan to do that in 2019. We also have a huge announcement about the show for 2019 that we're not quite there yet, but it's going to be cool. So just, just stay tuned. Cool. Next question is from Paul. He writes, great show. I've been listening for a couple of years now, and I'm excited every time a new show is posted. Just some background. I have 16 years of experience in the GIS and data management research and currently maintain the GIS and data assets for an investment bank here in Houston. 
made the move a little over a year ago from a well-known operator and have been amazed at the incredible lack of data that various organizations have for land, operations, and marketing that operators have. In fact, just before leaving the industry, I completed my MBA, which my final project was a was a change management process to tie land and reservoir engineering into a cohesive data set that both departments can access and analyze. It's still hard to believe that with all the available technology, the data styling, lack of cross-departmental communication and operators not entirely sure where their leases are located is still <laughs> such an issue. Do you see an end of this in the future? Thanks, guys, and keep up the great work. Uh, the reason yeah. I laughed is Jake and Colin are familiar with not quite knowing where their leases are. Yeah. Just a little while. Yeah. It's, no, you're exactly right, Paul. Uh, there's a significant amount of data issues in this space. Um, if you listen to the show for a while, you know I've probably talked about WellHub at least a million times. This is a big part of the problem that we set out to solve. It's kind of been my mission for the last five years is really solving a lot of the data issues that we have as an industry, especially in upstream. You know, most people are spending, most engineers and accountants and geologists are spending 80 to 85% of their time on data aggregation and preparation rather than actually spending time on, on doing their job, a high value task. And as a result, 97% of data collected today by ENPs is never used. Okay, so at that point, data becomes more of a liability than an asset. There's so much that can be done and, and that's and that's the reason that WellHub exists. We, we asked ourselves, you know, there had to be a better way and nobody was really doing it the way that we thought it needed to be done. So yeah, I mean, we do it. Obviously I think we're the best and that's a shameless plug, but you know, there's a lot of other data management tools out there. The bigger companies had the luxuries of spending more money on, you know, some SAP products and Informatica and, and, and whatnot. The issue becomes, and, the, and another reason that WellHub exists is because you, if you have data silos, it's because you have multiple systems. So you have a production system, you have an accounting system, you have land, various land systems and economics and it goes on and on and on. But the, the problem is that none of these ever communicate with each other. And the reason being is because they're built typically by oil companies or they're built by engineers who left oil companies and they never really came from software backgrounds. So they really don't have ways to actually integrate these with, with some of the other tools that an engineer or geologist or accountant would use in the day to day. So yeah, that was kind of a pitch, but sorry, but that's, that's the best answer, honestly. Yeah, and I think there's a cultural part of this too. So the older generation in oil and gas was used to going into one tool, grab that data, go to another tool, grab that data, go to another tool, then go to another tool to try to crunch all that. And it was just normal. This new younger workforce that's coming in looks at that and go, y'all are crazy, right? I'm able to do consumer-wise stuff on my my iPhone that you can't do with all these freaking high-performance computers laying around here. So I think this new younger workforce is going to force us to change quicker because it's just not an effective way to work. So uh, there's a cultural element here. So to answer your question, I do think there's an end to this in the future. And I think it's going to be that the end is going to get here much quicker than it normally would because these new younger workers are entering oil and gas. So you're just not going to put up with it. Yep. All right. Next question is from John is completions consultant at Stratagen. He writes, excellent show. Just tuned in this week and I'm hooked. You hear a lot of talk about the Powder River Basin these days. What do you think the future looks like for that region? I've I've only recently heard about it, maybe the last six months or so. All I know is it could be the next rage, maybe. Extremely capital intensive, I think. <laughs> you gonna be jumping yeah. here, Jake? <laughs> that, I mean, that, that's pretty. That's pretty much all I've heard is that it, it could be the next big thing, and it could be very, very expensive to find out if it's the next big thing. So it's extremely risky. We'll find out whether the, the reward is worth it or not. All right. So this basin uh, was doing really well back in the cold methane days. But I, I'm going to tell you something, Jake. One of the things a lot of people don't understand, especially in the Permian, is the reason Permian is so productive is because the hydrocarbons are stacked. And what I mean by that is I don't mean they they look like Jessica Rabbit. I mean that the hydrocarbons are in layers, both 
horizontally and vertically. So it's three-dimensional. So you can hit pay zone at, say, 1,200 meters, but then there's another separate pay zone at 1,400 meters. And those those pay zones go out laterally for miles. That stacked play is also what the, the powder basin has, right? The thing is, it doesn't have the degree of stack, and it also requires much more intense fracking to actually get there. And we're just now getting to the point where, from a technology point of view, from a pressure point of view, from a safety point of view, we can do much more intense fracking jobs than we could just a couple of years ago. But here's the big thing. You know who's a big owner out there, Jake, and, and getting ready to be a big operator is EOG Resources. And let me tell you. Nobody makes rock sing like EOG. So if EOG has a big stake out there, they're onto something huge. They don't usually make mistakes. So I think the the Powder River Basin is going to be uh, another future basin. And if you listen to our show, you've heard Jake and I talk about this all the time. What's ever hot now, go to the other one, right? So you, I, you know, right now, I would advise anybody unless they already have a substantial play in the Permian to look at investing because they're driving prices up. But these basins that aren't real popular right now, this is where the money's we made in the next 10 years. So, you know, EOG's out there hammering. I think Anadarko's out there. Uh, Devon, Devon's out there. Chesapeake's out there. So there's reasons they're out, out there. But anytime EOG grabs a large stake in a basin, th- there's money to be made there. So I, I think this is going to be a, another up-and-coming uh, basin that you'll hear about in a, in a few years that will grow, that will explode, that will have infrastructure problems, that will eventually get that fixed. And then once that's fixed, we'll move on to the next one. Yep. Cool. Next question is from Zach. He's a downstream engineer at ExxonMobil. He writes, hello, I'm a recent graduate of the University of Houston Chemical Engineering and a new hire at the ExxonMobil Baytown Refinery Complex. I just discovered this podcast and I fell in love with it instantly. As a downstream person myself, it's good for me to learn about what's going on in the upstream environment. However, I'd love some more downstream and chemical news with all the expected growth in those industries. Just started listening. So if you've touched more on this in the past, I apologize. Can't wait for the next Houston happy hour. I can't wait to see it, Zach. Make sure you go. It's going to be in January by, by everybody. Um, we're skipping December because we know none of y'all would show up anyway. So a couple of things. So first thing, it's obvious that he's a new hire at Exxon because he admitted he worked at Exxon. <laughs> if he had been there for 20 years, he wouldn't admit that he worked at Exxon, which I think is a good thing, right? And, and Zach, you're right. We don't talk a whole bunch about downstream because about 70% of the news out there is about upstream and the service companies that touch upstream. So of course, about 70% of what we're talking about is going to be that part of the market. But Zach, I got something that that nobody knows. We have a downstream podcast coming out. So we have a, a podcast coming out right smack in the middle of what you do. Cindy uh, Lee is going to end up being the host of that show. We're in the process of talking to sponsors, which by the way, anybody out there wants exposure to our enormous audience around the downstream, let me know. We're looking for sponsors for that show, but that show should be launched in 2019. So Zach, keep listening here. And as soon as the downstream show goes out, you'll hear it here and you'll listen there as well. And also Zach, I'm not sure if you know, but we also have uh, oil and gas industry leaders, oil and gas HSE, uh, oil and gas startups, and that the number of podcasts is just growing like crazy. So thanks for listening, but stay tuned. We got one just for you coming out. Next question is from Andrew Raggard, who's an engineer. Uh, he writes, I'm trying to increase my network in order to try to get back in the industry. Who can I talk to about advice and direction? So I'd actually reached out to Andrew, um, I don't know, whenever we get this question, uh, probably a few weeks ago. Yeah, just get out there. <laughs> I mean, I guess our, our happy hour is a, is, a, is a great start. I mean, that's always a, you know, it's a, it's a place for, you know, you have a lot of professionals, you have a lot of job seekers, you've got just people from all over the industry. Just go to more events. You know, it still is about who you know, uh, not just in this industry, but every industry. And that's definitely going to help you get a job. 
Yeah, I, I still, you're right, Jake. This industry is still a people doing business with people industry, and I love that, and that will never change. And Andrew, I'm going to have to agree with Jake on this, even though it sounds like we're self-promoting. Come to our happy hour. It's the movers and shakers, but it's the younger movers and shakers in the industry, and it's really easy to form a relationship. And we've had several people at the happy hours pick up new gigs, right? Just from being there, meeting the right people. I'm not saying that would happen to you, but the other thing is make sure you're spending time making a presence known online. So LinkedIn would be my first place I'd tell you to go. You know, if you're, if you're trying to get back into industry, I'm guessing you're not working or you're not working the way you want to. So maybe you have a little bit more free time. Start thinking about what, what the questions you always got as an engineer. Each one of those questions make for a blog post on LinkedIn. This way, the, the industry will start seeing you as uh, some expertise in some area, maybe even that guy. And that only helps to get the word out. And then Jake's also right. Go to as many of events as you can. Just be very selective. I don't know what type of engineer you are, or what type of role you're looking for, but you want to match the events. You want to think about who would possibly hire me and then what events do they go to in oil and gas. And that's the ones that you want to go to. Yep. But especially on land right now, it's so hot right now upstream. You just, they can't hire enough people. So if you in some way or fashion can touch upstream land operations, man, reach out to any of the service companies that are operating in the Permian and Midland. They can't hire quick enough. So that would be my advice to you. Next one up is from James, who's in sales at Consolidated Pipe and Supply. Hey, it's Mark. I'm in line pipe sales and work with a lot of midstream companies. Any thoughts on common trends that may affect midstream companies in a negative way? I'm new at this and still trying to figure out how the industry as a whole works together. Any insight or resources you guys recommend to learn this? Love the show. I hate to, to even mention this because people will think I'm talking bad, but I, I'm not. The midstream part of the industry, pipeline part of our industry is, is super important, but it's facing a couple of challenges that it's never faced before and it's having to learn how to deal with it. One is negative public perception. You, you've seen all the stuff on TV and in the news and you see what's going on in Canada where pipelines are being, and here too, where pipelines are being shut down left and right. And that's never happened before. It used to be if you own some land and somebody wanted to build a pipeline on, on a, or somebody wanted to buy a right away to build a pipeline on your property, you were overjoyed. That was a monthly check for the rest of your life and your rest of your family's life and their family and so on and so on. And once they're finished doing construction and they, the pipeline's buried, everything grows back. You can't even tell the pipeline's there. And for the first time in history, people aren't happy to have a pipeline on their property. The problem with that is the only the most effective, environmentally friendly, and safest way to get hydrocarbons to market is with a pipeline. Now, if we don't have a pipeline, they move that those hydrocarbons by rail or worse by truck, which is really bad for everybody. The other thing that's happened in pipelines, there's been a couple of lawsuits that have not been settled yet where the operators who signed long-term contracts with the pipelines are trying to get out of their obligation under bankruptcy. And the way the contracts are written in the midstream part of the world in the U.S. is that even if the operator who signed the contract declares bankruptcy, the pipeline company still gets its money first. So it's a very safe financial model. If either of those court cases get decided for the operators could change the financial market for the pipeline. And then finally, this uh, tariff on imported steel is for the short term also going to hurt the pipeline industry. So you know, I just, I'm finished. I'm in the process of doing my predictions for 2019. We've uh, already done it several times for private events. We'll get a video out and Jake and I will talk about it toward the end of this month, probably. But that's one of the parts of our industry that I, I'm concerned about in the U.S. is the midstream part of the industry. So, uh, James, don't get out of it. You know, pipe is, there's always a need for pipe, but step back, look at some of the issues that we're dealing with and see maybe if there's something that you can do as a company to to affect this. I'll give you a perfect example. Uh, shoot, now I can't remember the name of EP, the EPC. Oh, Jacobs. So Jacobs just announced that it's, is it Jacobs? I think it's Jacobs. Just announced that it's getting rid of its uh, pipe manufacturing business and it's 
tank storage business. Well, that means that some foreign pipe manufacturer could buy that pipe manufacturer here in the U.S. and then manufacture pipe here in the U.S. and get around those imports. Maybe, James, one of your suppliers doesn't know this is going on. So, you know, it's stuff like that that you could probably work together. And even though it's a challenge to the industry, maybe you could use it to your advantage and your company's advantage. Yep. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. It was McDermott. McDermott just announced they're getting rid of their uh, pipe manufacturing and their storage tank business. So, you know, James, Google that and see if there's some way you can work with that. All right. Last question is from Patrick Thompson. He's an engineer at NOV. Uh, he's got two questions. We'll start off with number one. Uh, Mark and Jake do a great job pointing in the audience toward the future of oil and gas industry, especially concerning potential markets that have yet to be developed or created. With that in mind, what is or, or what is or is there a consensus around when space flight will be commercialized? Once commercialized, what if any effect will this have on the hydrocarbon demand? I love this question, Patrick. I love this question because this is one of the things I, I talk about that people don't quite get. The only fuel in existence that has enough energy density to get us out of our gravitational pull is hydrocarbons. So if you look at what Elon Musk is doing, SpaceX, wonderful, brilliant stuff. It burns kerosene, right? That it, it, They call it something else, but it's basically kerosene, which is comes from, from crude oils. So the other thing is as we, and, and I'm a, I don't know if you believe this, Patrick, but I'm a firm belief that somewhere in our future, our survival as a species is going to be dependent on us getting out into space and understanding how to work and live there. If I'm right about that, we're going to need fuel. So one of the things that's really cool is, is at least in, in, in our solar system, both Saturn and uh, Uranus have moons that have lakes of methane. So it's basically lakes of liquid natural gas. So doesn't it make perfect sense <laughs> to just stop by one of those moons and drop a type and fill up your spaceship so you can keep going? You know, so hydrocarbons play a huge role. Plus every single, almost every single thing that allows you to live in space and survive space suits, the plastic containers that you bring food and water up in the insulation of the space stations, all of that stuff comes from hydrocarbons. So as we enter into the space, there's going to be a bigger and bigger demand for hydrocarbons, which is great. So I think that's what's going to happen. Now, you ask, when do I think space will be commercialized? It's still so extremely expensive. we got to get to the point where we can come up with a, a reliable, less expensive way to get stuff off the planet and into orbit. Once you're in orbit, the energy needs to move around are, are way drastically less than just getting off the, the planet. But that's the next step. Once we get there, then you'll see commercialization. And and trust me, we're we're really close to that. The stuff that SpaceX is doing is is a game changer. And what it's causing is causing the rest of the old-fashioned aerospace industry to have to innovate to keep up, which is a good thing for all of us. And second question is, in my opinion, Mark does a great job discussing the roadblocks to hydrocarbon development in other countries uh, other than the U.S., with the main factor being a lack of opportunity for citizens to cash in on mineral rights. Are there organizations, lobbyists, associations, etc., that promote changes to mineral laws in other countries? If these groups do exist, what would be their main hurdles in Western civilizations or in Eastern civilizations? So, Jake, is it me or is Patrick keep calling my name out? He's, he, I think I got a fanboy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just messing with you, Patrick. Whether you are or not, I still take it as a compliment. So this is a really good question. And and the short answer is it's not going to change. It, but it's so integral part of the culture, no matter what part of the world you're talking about, even in the UK, where it would just make total sense to give some mineral rights back to the population that owns the land. And there's there's some very select places in London where they do that, but it's not universal. So it's not fair to everybody. You're not going to see this change. And it's one of the things, the biggest 
benefits that we have here in the U.S. is that private citizens can own mental rights so they can benefit from the prosperity. And and I, I really, if I had a magic wand, I would change that everywhere, but it's it's just not going to change. Now, with all that said, of course, there's going to be some small pockets, some small countries that that will try to do things differently. But when you look at the percentage of the population of the rest of the world, you're looking at one or two percent. So I agree with you. If, if we could change something that simple, it would remove a lot of roadblocks to hydrocarbon developments, but it's, it's not going to change in other countries. And the good thing is we're going to keep it here. It's not going to go the other way here for, for darn sure. Well, that about wraps up the questions for this week. So if you have any questions for us for next month, just click the link in the show notes for the First Friday Q&A, submit a question, and we'll be sure to answer that on the next First Friday Q&A. Yep. And if you want to win one of these awesome Red Wing offshore bags, and I'm telling you people, enter now. <laughs> it's really simple. Go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Enter your information. We give uh, uh, one lucky winner a week. See official sites for rules and details. And Jake, what's the rig count doing? We're at 1149. Yeah. Thanks to Julian Info for that data. Events on deck. We don't have anything going on this month, which is good. We'll pick up the, the happy hour in January. But it's always the last Tuesday. And then we're launching happy hours in Dallas and Midland relatively soon. We're trying to get it done this year. I just don't think it's going to happen. So it'll be early next year. And then we have 14 other cities after that. If you want to learn about these events and more, I got a free uh, email that uh, newsletter goes out where we put all the oil and gas events in your inbox once a month. We don't charge you. And we also don't spam you. We also have, if you go on the oil and gas global network website, there's a calendar of events. So you can go and see ahead of time what's going on. That's useful to you. And then, you know, if you like Jake and I to come out and speak to your sales organization, your marketing organization, you want us to bring a podcast to your booth at a, at a conference. We've done that several times, been very successful. Just reach out to us. We'd be happy to share details with you. And then if you go to our website, go ahead and give us your email address. And then I talked earlier about the oil and gas street team. We're going to start doing some really cool stuff with some uh, people that want to volunteer and come work with us, be part of our gang. Part of that is we're going to start producing unique content for LinkedIn. If you want to get ahead of everybody else, go join the LinkedIn group, OGGN on LinkedIn. You'll be glad you did. All right, Jake, I'm ready for a glass of wine and dinner. You ready to get out of here? Yep, let's do it. All right, remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.